Okay, well, make your way to your seats with your Bibles, and um, I know that there's a, probably a few here who haven't had a chance, but you're going to want to make sure that you grab one of these. We have these in the back still that I just checked because I just grabbed a couple of them. So if you have yet to grab one of these charts, this is going to be so helpful and beneficial um, to you. And what it is, is it outlines when the minor prophets, when the major prophets are ministering and during what kings. And so it helps you kind of see the big picture and know the big picture of where we are in the setting and in the context of the whole Bible. So there's a few of those back there still, um, plenty. You can grab one of those. Linda has them. If anybody needs it, you don't want to get up. Linda's right there with them. So you can just slip up your hand and she'll give you one. Um, so let's, let's turn tonight. We're going to finish the book of Joel as we go through the entire Um, the 12 minor prophets. We're studying the minor prophets. And if you remember, as we even started Hosea, the minor prophets aren't called minor because of their message. Their message isn't any less or of any um, less importance or significance, the work that the Lord was doing through them, but they're called the minor prophets simply because they're smaller. They're smaller in size. And so we finished the book of Hosea, and last week we started the book of Joel. And just as, um, just as a reminder to set the stage of where we are tonight, um, Joel was the author of, of the book of Joel. And it, many believe that it was written right around the, um, 830 B.C., sometime in that, in that time frame. And remember, Joel was ministering at this time to the southern kingdom. So Israel was split into two, the ten northern tribes called... Israel, yep. And then the two southern tribes often referred to, uh, they, they're called Judah. So Joel would be ministering to the two southern tribes um, at this time. And this was probably around the same time that Elisha was prophesying in Israel up in the north. So just trying to get the whole, the, get our context, get our bearings for where we are. And then remember that as we look at the book of Joel, pretty much the main theme of it is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And we see that this is, um, can be fulfilled in, in two different ways. There's a near fulfillment of the day of the Lord, which um, as Joel was ministering in Judah, we know happened as there was a locust plague, remember? And we looked at that, how the locusts came and, and they devastated the land. And, and we talked about how the locusts at that time, um, and even when there's these swarms now, that they're so thick, they're so intense that they're actually picked up on radars, um, like just like an airplane would be. So uh, it's devastated. It wipes out everything. So there was this day of the Lord or, or the day of judgment, when God would execute judgment on Judah, literally, right? And, and that was fulfilled through the locust. But then we also talked about how there's a far fulfillment where we're going to look at more tonight, speaking um, of the future when God will execute judgment. And so there's this near fulfillment, far fulfillment. So the book can be divided up into two sections. The near fulfillment are chapters 1 all the way to uh, chapter 2, verse 17. So that's where we see the the near fulfillment, the literal fulfillment um, at that time of the day of the Lord. And then the second half, uh, obviously, is the rest of the book. Chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 3, where it's looking at the day of the Lord in the future. In the future. So last week, we left off with uh, chapter 2. So we finished chapter 1. And, and just as a reminder, as we talk about the day of the Lord, I want to go over real quick just a, a quick outline of what the day of the Lord is. So it's, that, it's also referred to in the Bible as that day or the great day or the day of the Lord. It's mentioned over 70 five times in the, in the Old Testament. And so a, a timeline of the day of the Lord, it's not just one day, but when it's referring to a day, it's, it's talking about a period of time. And this is the period of the time um, that begins with the tribulation. Remember, the tribulation begins, and then it ends um, after the tribulation, um, after the return of Christ, right, in the millennial reign, and then it ends with the removal of the world, and then after that, that's when the day of the Lord is fulfilled or finished, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth created. So that's what we're referring to in the day of the Lord. But 
let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1, and we're still looking at that literal, literal fulfillment of the day of the Lord at Joel's time. So starting with verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Uh, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and, and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, like the like of whom has never been seen, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. So we see here, starting in verse 1, that there's a warning. They're to blow a trumpet in Zion. They're to sound an alarm. So at that time, they didn't have, um, they didn't have the nifty iPhone notifications that when there's a weather alert or a flash flood or, or something where we need to be notified, right? And, and I don't know who it is, if it's your if it's Verizon or T-Mobile or if they, they sound the alarm or if it's the iPhone. I have zero idea. Um, but we can get those alarms, right? We're, we're notified like that instantly. And we can all know at once. Well, not having that technology, they would use the trumpet. They would use these trumpets to, uh, they would have certain calls of an alarm being sounded. And so Joel is saying, the Lord through Joel, sound the alarm. The day of the Lord is coming There is judgment coming to get the attention of the people. And we talked about how Joel, right, he loved the people and so he told them the truth. He told them the truth, warning of God's judgment. Remember, it's how loving it is to share the truth. Whether people want to accept it or not, whether they say it's loving or not, sharing the truth of God's word is loving. See, and the truth of the Bible is that you and I are sinners. The entire world is, is our sinners and that we're in need of a Savior to redeem us, and that's Christ. But the world doesn't want to talk about sin. They want to have their own righteousness, right? Being ignorant of God's righteousness, which is what Paul talks about in Romans 10, 3. But he, he shared the truth in love. So keep going. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like swift steeds, so they run. Like a no- with a noise like chariots, over mountaintops they leap. Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the walls like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. And they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. And everyone marches in his own column Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city, and they run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon they grow dark. The stars diminish their brightness, and the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great, and very terrible. Who can endure it? So we see, right, that, that he lays out what this is going to look like. And it's interesting, even as he finishes out there in verse 11, it's, he, he refers back to the Lord that the one um, for strong is the one to execute his word, right? There can even be this tendency to think, well, will God actually do this? Or will they truly be able to overcome us, right? That self-confidence, that pride. But Joel is saying, look, this is the word of the Lord. This is what God is saying is going to happen. So no, it will be fulfilled. But just one other note in all of this, kind of a picture for us to consider as we look more at a, the, the future fulfillment of this, notice what as you read verse 1 again, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm. 
What should that trigger in our Bible memories? What, what blowing of the trumpet do you know about in the New Testament? Remember the rapture, right? There's, there's a trumpet that's going to be blown. And, and in the New Testament, we know, of course, rapture is not, rapture is not in the Bible, but the root word for it is raptua, right? And that's found in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And that's where the trumpets, the alarms are, are blown before the people, right? The church is removed from earth to heaven to be with Christ. And then the judgment comes, right? The tribulation, the day of the Lord starts. So isn't that interesting? Even the alarms blown here literally to warn the people, but we know that when the trumpet blows, we'll be raptured up and we'll be with our Savior. There in the sky, we'll meet him. It's interesting, if you just look at the trumpets in the Bible, also we know in, in um, if you look in Exodus and Numbers, right, as the trumpets, they, they were to be blown as the people were to move, as they were to go out. So trumpets oftentimes are associated with, with the moving of people. And we, we know, again, that's, that's looking forward to the rapture ultimately. But we know if you, in verse 11, as he ends there, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, 22, that unless those days were shortened, no one could endure it. Again, referring to the tribulation period. But God's warning them through the prophet of Joel, a judgment is to come. But look at the Lord's heart. Here in verses 12 through 17, it's a call to repentance. So what are we, do, what are we to do in response of coming judgment? We're to repent. We're to turn to the Lord. And that begins, right, with, with repenting of our sins, turning to Christ as your Savior. And sharing the truth of coming judgment, we're to warn the, those who are outside of Christ that our sins will be judged, but there's a Savior to repent, to turn to him. Notice in verse 12, God's call to repentance. He says, now therefore, so in light of this, because of judgment is coming, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart with fasting and with weeping and mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Notice how many times in verse 12 and 13, it's two times in these two verses, the Lord says to turn, but, but where does he say to turn? He says to turn to me. In verse 12, turn to me with all of your heart. In verse 13, he says, return to the Lord. See, repentance is not just turning from one sin to, to something else. It's not turning to one form of, of self-righteousness or, or from one idol to another, but it's turning first and foremost, to God. We're to turn to him. And we're, notice he says that before we, we turn with our fasting and weeping and mourning, that we're to turn with our heart. He says we repent. As, uh, the, respond, the reality is, man, my heart is broken because I've sinned against my Savior. I've sinned against the Lord and I've wronged him. And as our hearts are broken, as our hearts are convicted by the Holy Spirit and we respond to his conviction, those outward actions follow, don't they? And there can be this form, at least I, I know it can be in my life and in and, and, and the Christian church, right, of just going through the outward motions of repentance, but no inward reality. See, God sees our hearts. He knows our hearts. We might fool others around us with our outward forms, of fasting or, 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 you know, just looking horrible, putting on a picture, but no reality within us. God says, give me your heart. Start with the heart. Repentance is not this outward exercise. The heart mentioned twice. It's the turning from sin to the Lord. We saw this in Hosea 14, verses 1 through 3, where there Hosea says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity 
And receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, and we will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our our hands, you are our gods. For in you the fatherless finds mercy. And we talked about that in Hosea 14. But notice here in verse 13 how many attributes of God are mentioned. He, He says, right after return to the Lord your God, he says, for he, the Lord, is gracious and he's merciful. He's slow to anger and of great kindness and he relents from doing harm. He's saying you can repent because of who God is. God is righteous. Yes, he will execute judgment. He can't and he doesn't overlook sin. But he will be merciful by providing a substitute for us in Christ. And I love how the Bible always encourages us, always tries to build, always builds us back up by pointing us to the character and to the nature of God. And when he's talking about in verse 14, who knows if, if he, if the Lord will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. See, God can choose to change his mind about judgment as people turn to him. He does not tell us how, but he can choose to do that. God can choose as we, as we repent to bless us instead and not give us what we deserve. And when God, when God chooses not to give us what we deserve, we know that that's called mercy, right? And it's interesting, if you go and read Romans chapter 9, it talks about the mercy of God shown. And God's mercy is always given for a purpose. God shows us mercy for a purpose, and ultimately, it's, it's, it's to give us an opportunity to turn to Christ. But what are we doing with the mercy that God has given to us, that God has shown us? It's not to continue into sin, but it's, it's, it's to turn to him and, and be forgiven and glorify him as others see his mercy upon our lives. But keep going on. He, he goes on now in verse 15 talking about this repentance. Notice he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing babes. Bring Malachi and Brit back up. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priest who minister to the Lord weep between, between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. That the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So here, the Lord calls the leaders to set the example in leading the way of repentance. They were to set the examples. And notice that they were to seek the Lord together. They were to consecrate a fast. And we talked about last week how that would change the entire um, pace of their life. It took a lot of time to uh, cook food, to gather it. They didn't have Walmart delivery. They didn't have an oven where they just turned it on and it heated. They had to go and make a fire. So they had this time now that they were to seek the Lord. And Later in verses 16, he says that they were to postpone the wedding because getting right with the Lord was more important. And that's the reality. See, we can have the wedding feast, we can have the best food, we can have all the celebrations, but what is it if we're not right with the Lord? That's what matters. Do you know that you're right with the Lord tonight? Man, and and when you know that... (laughs) It's like Psalms 32, right? Blessed is the man or the woman whose sins are forgiven. There's a blessedness that comes with it. But are are we willing to forsake any sin? Are we willing to set all those other things aside, all the other pools of life that are even good? Because our priority, our relationship with the Lord is, is our first priority in our life. But now we get to uh, chapter 2, verse 18, and we see that God begins to talk about the forgiveness and restoration. See, Joel is saying that when when they repent, when they turn back to the Lord, the Lord will forgive and he will bless them. And we see that that's the grace of God, isn't it? That's the grace and the mercy of God. As we read through these uh, sections, notice how many times the Lord mentions, uh, he says, I will, I will. 
And let that be an encouragement. It's not about the people, right? It's not about how good they are. It's not about their their self-righteousness. It's not about because they've cleaned up their act. It's not because they deserved it. But God says, I will do this. See, God wants the people to know as we read through this, as you note that, that without a doubt, all of this is his doing. The blessings, the grace that they have been shown is his doing. And he warns against idolatry in that. But we'll get to that. So verse 18, when the word, excuse me, then the word will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, see, as they repent, this is what the Lord will say. This is his response. Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Remember, they were a reproach. Even the farmers would be ashamed. They, they went out. All of their crops were destroyed. They had nothing. They had nothing economically. They were ashamed. But God says, I, you'll no longer be a reproach. Remember, we talked about how they wouldn't be satisfied anymore. All that they had was taken away. But notice again, God says that I will satisfy you. Verse 20 but I will, rem- I will remove far from you the northern army, and I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face towards the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul o- odor will rise because he has done monstrous, monstrous things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the fields. For in the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, he has, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month, and the threshing shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So notice here, we see that, right, in all of this, as we're reading through it, you can say, as if you're summarizing it, the curse has been reversed. The curse, the judgment that was upon God's people has been reversed. As they repented, as, as God showed them mercy, he gave them an opportunity, and he says, if you respond the curse will be reversed. Forgiveness, righteousness is offered in Christ. See, that's where our curse is reversed. You know that. See, in turning to him, notice even here what God will do. In verse 19, again, just summarizing it, he says that he will restore material blessing. Notice he doesn't say that they'll be rich, right? But he says that you'll have enough. You'll be satisfied. Not satisfaction in the material, because we know that that will never really satisfy. But even God says that this ultimate satisfaction is found in the Lord alone. And think about how Christ has done this in our life. See, in Christ, we can have fellowship with the Lord and find the satisfaction that our hearts long for. We know that Jesus told us about this in John chapter 4, verses, verse 14. Remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus met um, a woman at a well? And she was looking for satisfaction in a relationship. And, and, and she had all these husbands. And the man that she was with now living with wasn't even her own husband. And Jesus said, come to me and, and I'll give you water and you'll never thirst again. And he went on to say how this this water is, he is the living water, right? That he is, he is the water that satisfies us. Also John six thirty five. Jesus goes on to say that there. And so we see that for us, the satisfaction is found in Christ. We can now be satisfied. In verse 20, where the word says that he will remove their enemies, if you go back and, and look at that, we know that that is same with us. There's Right? He's saying that I'll take care of your enemies. I'll fight your battles. You'll be secure. See, Deuteronomy warned that in turning from the Lord, judgment would come. But in turning to God, he would protect them. 
And you know this, that in Christ we have security, don't we? In Christ we know that there is no condemnation. We know that Satan, he's the condemner of, the, of us. But there's no condemnation. Romans 8.1 tells us for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no war for us anymore. See, Romans 5 tells us that we are no longer at enmity or at war with God because you are in Christ Jesus. We know too that death, the, our final enemy, has been defeated. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. So even for us, see, in Christ, as the curse is reversed, you and I can be secure. And how sweet is it to know and to have that security, right? You're secure in Christ. Not only that, but keep going on, verse 25, he says, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, and the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. The praise and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. For you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is none other. My people shall never be put to shame. So here we see that God will restore the blessing. See, what was lost because of sin, right? We know that he, 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 their crops were devastated. They had nothing. And even think about it, they would, they would be storing up, right, for the sabbatical year, right, as they would take that Sabbath and God would even bless them even more. All that they had was wiped out. But God says that I will restore this, the blessings that sin had stole. Spurgeon says this, He says, it's a great wonder, but Jehovah is a God of wonders. In the kingdom of his grace, miracles are common. It will strike you at once that the locust did not eat the years. The locust ate the fruit of the year's labors, the harvest of the fields, so that the meaning of the restoration of years must be the restoration of the fruits and the harvest which the locust consumed. So you cannot have back time But there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give you back the wasted blessings. The unripened fruit of years in which you mourn the fruits of wasted years may yet be yours. F.B. Meyer on this verse, he goes on and he says, "Um, But God waits to forgive, to put away from his mind the memory of wasted paths, to place the crown of a new hope upon your brow, Yea, more to restore to us the years that the locusts have eaten. There shall be a revenue of glory to him that even in those wasted years. See, God is prepared, he, he is gracious, and God is prepared so to add his blessing to us in the present and the future, as to give us in each year not only the year's produce, but much more, so that in each year you'll be laden with and waited with blessing of three or four besides. Where sin abounded, grace shall much more abound. Where we have sown, we shall reap, not thirtyfold, not only, not a hundred, but a hundredfold. God is anxious to give us a large, or give us a large a result as possible to show our life's work. See, it's the grace of God that makes this possible. And if, I, and if I think that it's dependent on me good enough, then I'll become discouraged because I'll never be good enough. But when I look at God and his graciousness to, to keep his word, to restore the blessing, man, what a sweet promise this is. And notice this is a promise of God that we can hold on to. Man, the wasted years of sin, God can double our fruit can, can restore the fruit of those years now. But notice this, here's, here's really the, the ulti- ultimate is in verse 27. Notice he says, then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. <laughs> See, that's, that's, that's the pinnacle of it all. 
Man, we can have, sure, the material. There's nothing wrong with it. And that is a blessing. There's a fruitfulness of our life. There's a security. But all of it's a result because God's in the midst of you and me. God will dwell with us again. And all of that results from God being in his proper place, right? Being in his proper place. And as God's in his proper place, as we see him for who he is, as we know him for who he is, See, your hearts will say that there is no other, that there is no other God. You'll never be put to shame as he's in the center of our lives, as he's in your midst. So in verse 28 now, he starts, he describes the last days. The last days are are described here. So he says, and it shall come to pass afterwards. So that's where we're getting, that's how we know that he's talking about the last days. He's saying afterwards, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in, the mountain, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant who, whom the Lord calls. So we know that this should sound familiar. Peter reference this, he quotes these very verses on the day of Pentecost. And we know that it was on the day of Pentecost. What did God do? That he poured out the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Holy Spirit. And that was the beginning of the last days. And, and that's where we are now, right? The last days. The last days can also be referred to as the church age. That we're in the last days. We're in the church age. See, throughout the Old Testament, the Lord gave his Holy Spirit on certain people in certain times. And you know that. Think about it. Right? David, the Spirit came upon him. Samson, the Spirit came upon him. Saul, we also know. Right? But now, in the last days, all flesh, he will pour out his Spirit upon. All who are in Christ. See, God's Spirit, right, the Holy Spirit now, because of Christ, doesn't just come upon us for moments, but we know that the Holy Spirit lives and abides within us. How sweet that is. Man, you think about Samson, or you think about David, these men who did mighty things for the Lord. And the Spirit just came upon them. And now we have the Spirit living within us. In the Bible, it's not just like... Yes, he, when you're saved, he, we know that he comes and he lives inside of us. And, and, and the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as even our seal, like our down payment, right? Our security that we know God will come for us again. But not only that, the Bible invites us to call out to the Lord and simply ask to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. To be filled afresh, to be used by him. In Ephesians, it talks about this. It says, be not drunk with wine, but be you be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that means that daily, you and I can simply ask the Lord to just fill us afresh. Lord, give me a fresh outpouring that you may accomplish your work in me today, whatever that is. If it's just simply to be a mom or a dad or a coworker or a friend that you need me, that you're calling me to be, Lord, There's no way that I can do that apart from the work of your spirit. There's no way. But notice, all this is connected with the message of repentance, right? Repentance. The message of repentance in the book of Acts was prominent. See, as the church went forth in Acts, being witnesses, they preached repentance. How do we know that? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, there we read, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sin. Acts 3.19, Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshings may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 8.22, there we read, Repent, therefore, 
of this, your wickedness, and pray to God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. Acts 17, verses 30 through 31. Truly, there are these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And also in Acts twenty six twenty, But declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of, uh, of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance. And we notice, see the same time, or the same factor here. In Joel, we just looked at, right, right? God says judgment is coming, but he says repent. I'm merciful, and as you repent, I will restore the blessing, but not just restore your blessing, but I will give you my Holy Spirit. And that's what, for us, right? We, can, we know that um, the Holy Spirit draws us to his Son, comes alongside us, that we might be convicted of sin and, and, and turn to him, right? And as we do that, he comes, we have that relationship of him upon us, drawing him to us. Then when we repent, we t- return to Christ. He abides in us, right? And then finally, he comes upon us to empower us. So there's these different relationships with the Holy Spirit, but it starts by turning to the Lord. Man, turning to the Lord. And then not only that, but once we're in Christ, the Bible warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Not to grieve the Holy Spirit, to remain in sin. Because in doing so, we grieve the Holy Spirit. But thank God that, man, he offers us repentance. But notice too, in verses 31 through 32, we kinda, we're not going to spend much time of it, on it. But this is during the tribulation periods. These are some of the signs that will be happening on the earth. See, and we know that during the tribulation, as the hardship comes, that it's then that the Holy Spirit will open the eyes of many of the Jews and and Israel will see Christ as the Messiah. And and it's during that time that they'll turn to him. Zechariah, right, tells us that. But that's what it's referring to there. So chapter 3, here we see in chapter 3 that the nations are judged. The nations are judged. So in verses, starting with verse 1, we see, For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people and my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land, and they have cast lots for my people, have, have given a boy as a payment for a harlot, and sold a girl, not a girl, a girl for wine, that they may drink. Indeed, what have I to do, or what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon? In all the coast of Philistia, will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. Also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, you have sold to the Greeks that you may remove them far from their borders." So here, we're looking at judgment that's to come. So we know, right, as, as Israel, uh, they, they turn to Christ as their Messiah, they recognize him as Messiah, that we know that ultimately the nations will be judged for how they treated God's people during the tribulation period. And that's this judgment that we're talking about. But he says in verse 2, that I will bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That simply means the valley of Jehoshaphat means Jehovah judges. The valley where Jehovah judges. And God here brings a charge against the nations who attacked Israel for how they treated his land and what they took. Notice he said that the nations have scattered Israel. They've divided up their land. They've cast lot for, or for people. That's the devaluing human life. Also, they sold kids for sex 
and alcohol, and they've taken from God. See, because God said in treating and doing this to Israel, to doing this, he says that it's my people. They're my heritage. It's my silver and gold. In doing this, they're mistreating God ultimately, his prized possessions. You see, you might ask yourself, how could the Lord say this about Israel? How could he say this about Israel? Because I thought we were just looking at how Israel had sinned against the Lord. How they turned to idols. How they have, we know that, right, standing on this side of the cross, how they, they rejected the Messiah and killed him. Well, we know this. Titus 2.14 says, speaking of Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. See, although they had sinned, although they had rejected, God wasn't done with, and he's not done with Israel. He's not done. And in Christ, there's still forgiveness, there's restoration. And we know that the same is true for us, right? That God has purchased us from the bondage of sin when we rejected him. You know, we were the ones who once worshipped idols. We went after other gods. And we see God has forgiven them and he, and he calls them not just broken uh, pieces that he's put back together, but we know that in Christ that we're new creations. And, and he calls them his heritage, his prized possession. And we know that he considers us, right, his prized possession. How sweet that is to know. See, we know in verse 1, um, it, even there's a, there's a literal fulfillment, the near fulfillment there is that when the Lord would bring back Israel from Babylon. But also, ultimately, we know that this is fulfilled in the end times when Christ excuse me, when Israel recognizes Christ as the Messiah. That judgment can uh, also, as this judgment in, as a whole, is referred to in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. You can go and read, read that, where Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, right? And this is at the end of the tribulation, before the millennial reign, where God brings those nations and he judges them according to how they treated Israel. Because their treatment for God's people reveals their heart. Now some believe that this could um, also be referring to the battle of Armageddon, which is, um, you can find that in Revelation 6, verses 12 through 16. But notice this, in verse 7 through 17, we see God's final judgment. Verses 7 through 17, God's final judgment. For behold, I, rise, I, I raise them out of the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they shall sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. So in verses 9 through 10 there, it's speaking of those in the tribulation preparing to fight against the Lord. This is actually the opposite if you were to go and read Isaiah 2 verse 4, which is what will be happening during the millennial reign. They're not preparing for war, but there's peace during the millennial reign. But all this, they're fighting against the Lord, and do they really stand a chance? Yet I think about, even in our own lives, right, we can fight against the Lord in certain things. I can rebel. I can say, Lord, I'm not going to let you touch that area of my life. I'm not going to give that up. And how foolish it is to look at this and to say, come on, guys, you're really going to fight against the Lord? You think you stand a chance? And, and yet I, I think that, that I'll be successful. It's just foolishness. So verse, keep going on, verse 11. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put 
put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, come, go down, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy and no alien shall ever pass through her again. So in verse 13, we know that this is uh, referring to Revelation 14, verses uh, 14 through 20, where God's pouring out his wrath. But in verse 14, the valley of decision that's referred to here. See, this is when God will judge based on the decisions people are making today for against the Lord. It's not so much at that time, people standing in a valley and there in that valley making their decision. But the reality is that we're making our decision. People are making their decisions today. But it's when we're in that valley that God will execute, or he will ratify, he will execute the decisions that they have already made. So what of decisions have we made? Have you turned to the Lord? Have you, have you repented of your sin? See, and if not, today, today is the valley of, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to decide. But verse 18, we see that God's blessing, the blessing of the Lord, and it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and the brooks of, of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord. And water the valley of Akakas. Egypt shall be a desolation. And Edom a desolate wilderness. Because of the violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of their guilt of bloodshed, whom I have not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So in this blessing, notice that verse 18 is speaking of the temple in the millennial reign, where Ezekiel 47 tells us that water will flow from the east of the temple to the Dead Sea, where there will be life Again, where there will be vegetation. And, and those who are going to Israel can tell us this firsthand as they come back. But if you go to the Dead Sea, there's no life there. It's, it, the, the concentration of the minerals, it's so thick. Uh, it's so dense, the water, so filled with minerals that you can just go float in it. Don't put your, if you put your head underwater, it's, there's like so much pressure that it just is painful. But notice that God's saying that where there was death, where there was no life, that as he pours out his spirit, right, water, as it comes forth, there'll be vegetation now. There'll, there'll be life again. See, it's God who is the one who's given us life spiritually. And I love verse 21, how he just says that God will acquit, or he will forgive. He'll forgive them of their sins as they just look to him. And so we look at, at, at the book of Joel, and, and it warns us of, of judgment that is to come. And so number one, it teaches us just in summary a few things. Are you prepared? Do you know that you're right with the Lord? See, the Bible says that if you're still counting on your, your own righteousness, my own righteousness is as filthy rags. It's in Christ alone that we know that we can be secure, that on that day, right, that, that we will be accepted, that, that there's, no, there's no worry of my sin. They've been forgiven because you're in Christ Jesus and it's the grace of God. Now, for those of us who are right with the Lord, a couple other things that it teaches us, that it shows us. Are we sharing with others? Are we warning others that judgment is to come? Are we warning them in love? We might be rejected they might make fun of us. They might think we're weird for talking about that. But who cares? 
Man, I, I love them enough to tell them the truth. And finally, as we just even look at judgment um, altogether, judgment's not that, it, it's sweet because we know that things aren't right now. We know that things aren't as they should be. And I know that when God, when he has his final say, right, he'll make all things right. And, and if all things aren't right, then it's not the end yet because in the end, he will do that. So we can take comfort in that. We can take comfort. We can take hope in that. And so, Father, tonight as we are just here, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone even in this room tonight, Lord, as, as we uh, just close in prayer, God, we want to um, take your word literally, Lord, and if there's anybody, any of you tonight who just want to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that if we were to ask him that he will simply do that. And so if that's you tonight, we just want to do that. Will you just raise your hand and as our, just as a response of, of showing the Lord and, and saying yes to the Lord. Lord I want to be filled afresh with your spirit tonight. So if that's you, just slip up your hand and we want to pray for you. Lord, even tonight you see those hands that are raised. Lord, you see those who are asking to have just a fresh feeling, God. Lord, and whatever that looks like, Lord, if there's sin that we need to repent of or things that we just got to get rid of in our life, God, convict us even tonight of that. Lord, and would you fill us afresh, God, that you might be glorified. Lord, we know that the work of the Spirit is not to glorify ourselves, Lord, not that others would see us, but that others would see your Son. So, Lord, I just pray that, that Lord, you would give these folks with their hands um, up, Lord, opportunities tomorrow, Lord, even tonight maybe, Lord, to witness to a friend, to a co-worker, to a loved one, Lord, that you would use them, God, in the giftings that you've give, given them, whether it's administrative or, Lord, <laughs> Um, or just with prophecy, or teaching, or Lord, whatever it may be. God, would you give them uh, and, and opportunities to use their gifts? God, and would many come to know you through, through them, Lord? And we just pray for uh, just our church body, God. Would we be a church body that is, is sharing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Lord, we know that he's He's um, taken that judgment which we deserve, God, and we, would we be ones that not, don't just know this intellectually in our head, Lord, but it changes our hearts and that others see and are provoked to want a relationship with Christ. So we thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you for your mercy. God, we thank you um, just for your word. And as we just come and, man, I just, the revival that happens just as we looked at in Psalm 118 to start off the service. And so, Lord, thank you for loving us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Okay, so.